recognizing even there that some of the traditional models of leadership development of, you know, we might identify somebody with gifts and skills, but then we're going to just send them off to a Christian college or seminary and then hope that eventually they find their way into ministry. Churches are realizing um, that they need to embrace a more hands-on approach to teaching and learning, that, that churches need to be a community where this kind of teaching and learning can happen in a way that's embedded in the community. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Dylan Pommen, research fellow and executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality here at Acton, sits down with Jeff Fisher, professor of theology and director of spiritual formation, and Branson Parler, professor of theology and director of theological education, both of the foundry to discuss their entrepreneurial alternative to traditional Christian higher education for ministry leaders. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you could help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Act in Line. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by two of the three co-founders of The Foundry, a ministry and theological leadership training organization started as an alternative to the higher ed model of Christian colleges, universities, and seminaries, working directly with church congregations to meet their community's educational needs. Dr. Jeff Fisher is professor of theology and director of spiritual formation at The Foundry, and Dr. Branson Parler is professor of theology and director of theological education. Well, Jeff, Branson, welcome to Act in Line. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the Foundry. Uh, I, for years, have been following um, really this ongoing crisis in higher education, um, a little more from a financial perspective. Certainly, um, it's in the news currently, the idea of forgiving student loans. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of people, whatever anyone thinks of that political issue, I think a lot of people are very aware that the current university model, the current college model, is just not serving our economy's needs. And what's interesting to me about the Foundry is uh, you have taken that in a very specific direction in terms of ministry training um, and trying to really start up uh, this entrepreneurial alternative to the traditional higher ed model. So um, I know you both come from Kuiper College, my alma mater. Um, And just tell me a little bit about how did you get from Kuiper College a year ago uh, to the Foundry today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, like, like you mentioned, um, we come from within the world of higher ed and so recognize that uh, there are a lot of challenges going on there. Um, and we also come from uh, within, you know, a church context where uh, both of us are pastors, ordained pastors, uh, very attuned to the needs of churches. And so uh, trying to think about... Um, you know, the needs of students who are looking for ministry training, the need of churches, uh, and uh, really, I think, started to question whether the current higher ed model was the best fit, both in terms of the economic aspect, um, but even in terms of the pedagogical aspect, think about teaching and learning how that, how that best happens. Uh, and so uh, I think as we 
looked at the landscape uh, and really um, spent a good amount of time in, in prayer uh, and just wrestling with this. I mean, for us, it was a huge decision uh, to move out of the academic world. Both of us have PhDs. That's what our training was focused on, our, uh, our area of expertise. Uh, but, but really starting to question, are there other ways to accomplish the same ultimate goal? Uh, right of doing the training and equipping, um, that's what we love—the teaching and learning. Um, but saying, does it have to be within this higher ed model uh, that I think is broken in a number of ways? But particularly the financial piece, as I think about what students are asked to bear uh, in that model, uh, it's a huge amount. Uh, and to to think about uh, students going into ministry with. 40, 60, 80, $100,000 of debt, um, that's not sustainable. And so when you think about the crisis um, in ministry even of, of pastors who are burning out or bailing out, um, I think we often don't talk about how the financial uh, piece of that plays into that. Um, but putting that huge burden on people at the front end of ministry uh, means that that's something that they have to carry with. For some of them, they might carry throughout almost their entire career to be able to pay that back. Um, so those are a few factors, I think, that we were, we were processing looking at a, both an academic system and a church system that, that has some flaws and dysfunction and just thinking about, could we offer a different alternative? And so one of the ways that this developed was I was serving as academic dean, and Sarah Beam, who's another one of the founders of the foundry, um, we were in the academic office, and Branson would often come in with these ideas of what if we did this? What if we did this? And what if we had this alternative? And what if we, you know, looked at it from another way? And a lot of it was how could we provide what we were doing in the classroom for these 18 to 22-year-olds for the most part to other people in the church who needed this and who were interested in it? And we we worked a few things. We tried a few different things, but nothing really materialized, and it doesn't really fit with the current higher education model. And so— after, you know, several months of uh, praying together and discerning together, we were like, what if we just did this on our own? And I mean, in many ways, kind of the rest is history. And, you know, over time uh, and over a lot of prayer and fasting and discerning, uh, we decided to go on our own and, and launch the foundry. So I want to go in like two different directions. Uh, I think I'll start with this. So what what does it take, though, to do it on your own? I mean, you can't just say, okay, let's quit our jobs and, you know, snap our fingers and we got an income. Um, I mean, you have a very, very pressing economic need of providing for yourselves and your own families. Um, you need this to be, you know, at least some kind of marginal success. There needs to be revenue coming in to yeah, pay mm-hmm. your salaries, mm-hmm. right? So how does it work? What's the business model of the foundry? How is How do you go from, again, basically just nothing to something uh, in, a, in a sustainable way. And I know it, it's still very new, um, so maybe, maybe we'll see how sustainable it is. I, I, hope, it, I hope it is, but, um, but tell me a little bit more about that. So one of the advantages that we had was that we'd already been building networks with people, and um, one was a system of a multi-site church in Dyer, Indiana, um, who, was, who had already tried some things with a ministry institute, a leadership development thing, um, and really, once they heard that we were doing this, they were all in, and they were on board with us. And we actually started teaching classes down there for them, like the day after graduation in Kuiper. Yeah. You know, we were we were we were working with them before the foundry officially existed. Okay. Um, so we were teaching already in May, um, and the foundry kind of officially started in July. 
Um, and so we had that partner. We had a few other partners. And so that, that really helped with some of that revenue stream of our services and membership fees. So churches um, can sign on as kind of like a subscription fee to have a monthly amount where we come and teach or do coaching or, you know, a variety of the services we provide. Um, but the reality is we also had some, some really um, faithful and generous donors um, who loved the idea of disrupting the higher education system, of training and supporting pastors and training new leadership people. Um, and so, I mean, really kind of about two-thirds of our revenue is from contributions and one-third is from churches and services. Okay. Because as you can anticipate, churches don't allocate a lot of funding for this stuff as either. Right, right. But having served in the, you know, leadership level of higher education, um, this is probably not a secret, especially if you go looking at IRS 990 information, but most Christian colleges are at least 50-50 individual contributions, foundations, and tuition. So even though we talk about a tuition-driven model, a lot of Christian colleges our salaries were actually being very much paid when we were at a Christian college by individual contributions. So there's, there's definitely that dynamic that continues there. Yeah, I think it's been, it's been great to see the way that God's connected us with churches who are early ad- adopters of, of this model, because I think that's really crucial is um, recognizing even there that some of the traditional models of leadership development of, you know, we might identify somebody with gifts and skills, but then we're going to just send them off to a Christian college or seminary and then hope that eventually they find their way into ministry. Churches are realizing um, that they need to embrace a more hands-on approach to teaching and learning, that that churches need to be a community where this kind of teaching and learning can happen in a way that's embedded in the community. Um, and part of what that means then is for those churches who are doing this, that the folks who are being uh, trained and equipped um, aren't the ones bearing the brunt of the costs themselves either. And so part of what's great about the financial model is that there really is this vision of, of uh, us being a team with, with the churches that we're partnering with, with donors, with everybody involved, uh, so that rather than having some people who are bearing uh, really what ends up being an unbearable cost, uh, you have that spread around by those who really believe in the mission and want to see, want to see the church grow in that way. Now, the other question I want to ask is a little more personal uh, for you, Branson, in terms of uh, you're a few years older than me, which means you're Gen X, which means you got a PhD in theology at about the worst time in history to get yeah. a PhD <laughs> in theology. Yeah. Uh, you had a job teaching theology, tenure track, or was it tenure? Yeah, yeah, was tenured. Tenured, yeah I was tenured. Tenure professor of theology. Yeah. That's very rare for someone your age. Um, and yet, you know, you, you walk away from it. What what does it take to do that? Just on a personal level, on a family level, what does it take to, uh, yeah, I, that, I just, I can't imagine doing that myself. That, you know, again, that's kind of like the dream to some degree. And, yeah. and you know. Um, yeah. I, I mean, for me, what, it was in a lot of ways a, you know, a time of crisis uh, for me, a time where um, I really had to um, ask myself, the hard questions about, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, what is it that ultimately drives what I do? And I love the academic world, um, but my engagement in the academic world, I've always seen that as this is how I use my gifts to serve the church. And so part of the reason that I, um, I think, connected well with Kuiper early on is because of its roots as Reformed Bible College. Um, my parents went to Bible college. My grandparents went to Bible Institute. 
and so there's a sense in which those in, those uh, institutions were very focused on equipping people for the church. Uh, and so as, as I process that, part of the question for me was, is the current state of higher ed, is this the best place to actually serve the church and to raise up and equip people uh, in this way? Uh, and so it was, I mean, I... To be honest, I was looking at, are there other potential academic jobs out there? What's the path forward for me um, at that time? And it, it's almost, I mean, one of the best ways I can describe it is it's almost like God took my <laughs> my taste for the academic world off the table. Hmm. Um, and, and it was just so clear to me that uh, he was calling us to the foundry to start something new uh, that would be... Uh, again, embrace the best of the teaching and learning that, that I love about the academic world, um, but to bring that to churches uh, and to use that to to equip churches. So, um, I mean, I, I'm just thankful for God's grace enabling me to make that break um, for for my wife, who had this kind of unshakable faith in the midst of all this, where we would talk about this and she was just like, well, what's God calling you to do? That's that's the question, and I'm like, well, how are we going to pay for this? <laughs> like, right, right. What's yeah. uh, we, we have six kids. Uh, who's yeah. going to put food on the table? How is this going to happen? Um, and, and so, I think you have, um, you know, just by the grace of God, it was, it was clear so many times. And we could talk through just a number of different times where God was clearly saying, um, "I'm calling you to this. Uh, I'll provide for you." Uh, and so step into this. Again, none of that means, you know, you don't have to think strategically and, and work and connect. Um, but it really was, I think, this this story of God building this all the way uh, and us being us being willing to say yes, which which did mean turning our backs on. I think what for me was my dream job. Like this is this is what I was going for. And, and this is what I was in. Um, but. Several times in the last year, I've said, huh, I think that what I'm doing now is actually my dream job. <laughs> that because what, how God has worked through this to connect us with churches, um, engaging with people who in different ways are, are doing ministry or they're already in ministry. You know, to be honest, you're not trying to convince 18 year olds, hey, you should actually care about this stuff um, because, um, you know, unfortunately, if, a good number of them don't. Um, but when you're in a church context, you're working with people who, for different reasons, already want to be engaged in this, and, and they see the need for this. And so it creates a whole different atmosphere of, of learning and teaching. So let's talk a bit more about the human side, yeah. <laughs> not, not at all to downplay uh, any providential uh, um, aspect of this, but... Um, it's the question I got from, I don't know if you guys watch Hot Wings. Do you ever watch Hot Wings on YouTube? Um, so he's a great interviewer. Uh, the shtick is, I think we should bring it to Act in Line sometime, with the hot wings and the hot sauce and everything. But one of the interview techniques he does is he'll ask people about um, kind of a best and worst. So yeah. uh, similarly, for both of you, maybe uh, can answer separately or maybe you'll agree, but um, what do you think it has been, uh, it's only been 10 months or so, but uh, what, is, what has been your biggest success so far and what has been maybe your biggest uh, mistake or challenge or you know, how yeah. we want to mm -hmm. rhetorically frame that? Yeah. We probably will answer very similarly. Yeah. Although I think for me, the best is when I see something that we've taught 
to one of our ministry formation people or another leader, and then they use that and teach another group of of participants, students, learners, whatever group they're working with. Um, that's really, I mean, that's what I feel is my calling, and that's what excites me. And while we got to see some of that when we were professors in uh, at Kuiper, it was usually delayed like three to five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, like we can see it within months mm-hmm. that like what we've been teaching, they're now sharing with others and implementing uh, in their own ministry. Um, I'll save the worst one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. We start with best. Then yeah, we yeah. And go from there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think something similar. So to me, part of what's been interesting is, um, or, or I, I think one of the, one of the big highlights is to see, uh, that because of how we're engaging in this way, uh, that what we're doing is not just providing training or equipping, but we're actually making these deep relational connections with the people that we're involved in. And so because I, th- I think, you know, doing ministry in a church context is deeply personal. Uh, it's deeply relational. Uh, and so it's given us the opportunity to not only uh, help work with and equip folks, uh, but when they have questions about next steps in life and ministry, uh, it gives us the opportunity to connect with them in, in a deeper way. And I think that's one of the things I always loved about being a professor um, at a place like Kuiper that was smaller, that was focused in that way, that, that you see life transformation happen and people actually being able to do, you know, that kind of application of the skill or, the, you know, the things that you're teaching because of the, the personal and relational connection. And so um, to me, I think it's been that that joy of, of, of seeing that in a lot of ways we are, I used this phrase before, but we're in the trenches with people who are in church ministry. Like we're, we're coming to them and we want to walk with them through that. So I think that for me, that's a huge, a huge win. I think, I mean, it's hard to use worst, but at least challenging. Um, one of the challenging things that we, um, that we've done this past year is that we just wrote lessons, wrote curriculum for people to then teach to others. Um, and that was far more time extensive for the us than we imagined. Um, I think partly because of our training as professors and our experience in the classroom, like we're used to, okay, I got my main ideas and I'm going to go up and I've taught this so many times that I can just, I can just go with it. Whereas like putting together and here's what you say. And then these might be the questions that people ask, and here's how you might respond to those. Um, and it was just, it was really extensive amount of work. And then not actually getting to be there <laughs> as this is delivered and to see much of the results of it, um, it was it was time consuming. And then just like the the reward of it was not as fruitful as many of the other things as, as we've done. Yeah, that's interesting. That would, that would be mine as well. And, and because I think it shows... You know, part of the need that we've seen is there's all kinds of curriculum out there. There's all kinds of material out there. Um, but what, what we really need is this kind of embodied presence and connection. So our strength is we're teachers who can teach others and train other teachers and, and see how that continually flows into the life of the church. And so um, we're not just trying to produce abstract material or even here's just a, a template um, that's really not our strength and focus. So, but that's part of the experimental process of figuring out. I, I mean, honestly, that's one of the challenges of discerning is like, well, there's all these things we could do because part of what we see is when you think about uh, training and equipping disciples and leaders in the church, there's a huge range uh, of what that could look like. And so for us, it's figuring out what's our, 
sweet spot, what are the things that we should devote most of our time and energy to? Um, but part of that is just the experimental process of of trial and error. And so that's that's one of the things that I'm sure even in coming years we'll continue to experiment. And as we figure out what works, I mean, I think when you're trying to build something that's outside the box, by nature, you have to do some of that. Um, otherwise, you're still inside the box just doing – producing what's there. And that's also one of the strengths of, you know, we're flexible to be able to do this kind of stuff, whereas higher education, you know, there's accreditation requirements and there's expectations and you don't have that flexibility of like, well, that didn't work. We'll just we'll just do a whole different model. We'll just do a whole different approach for it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's one of the – so even though it's a challenge, that's one of the benefits that we also have seen over these past 10 months. So in a sense, you're – I'm trying to like get a vision of – you know, what What happens when a church comes to you? What? How are you involved? You mentioned wanting to have personal connections, but also you're basically writing curriculum. So you're taking on not only um, the teaching aspect of higher ed, but even like the textbook to some degree creation, um, course creation side of higher ed, the planning, and then also um, you're teaching other teachers. So you're, you're doing training and then other people are implementing uh, this. So what does it look like if a church just, you know, um, random, you know, Jesus Church X uh, <laughs> comes to you, says, hey, we got, you know, this this much of a budget or whatever. And we want to know, you know, what what do you have to offer? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah. So for us, it's we've, we've kind of clarified that uh, what we do focuses on a couple of different groups. Um, now, I should say we do have a pastor's group that Jeff leads once a month that's focused on just times of connection, nourishment, and scripture and prayer for pastors. Um, but as we work with churches, a lot of times we either specifically are doing uh, ministry training. So like what Jeff mentioned, we do with Faith Church, or uh, we also have a group that meets uh, here in Grand Rapids that is primarily focused on people who want to learn and grow in ministry. They're often in the front end of ministry, but but doing ministry in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and that could also include um, you know, equipped lay leaders who want to continue to grow doesn't necessarily mean they have to be a staff person. And so uh, really s- figuring out what does it look like to do that in your your context, you know, we bring, in terms of content, we bring uh, our years of 20, combined 20 plus years of experience of teaching pretty much everything across the board in Bible and theology, preaching, teaching, um, all those kinds of things that we can essentially set up with a church where you're basically getting seminary in your church context, uh, either for your particular church or even for groups of churches, you know, networks who want to connect uh, in that way. Uh, but we also do training for for lay leaders, uh, again, where it's uh, training in, and Jeff could talk a little bit about that, but equipping in character and knowledge and skills. So thinking about those lay leaders, folks like elders or deacons or others in your church context who want to grow, uh, but who in a lot of ways, a whole college class of content is just overwhelming and undoable in that time frame. But it really then means sitting down and figuring out what does it look like to piece by piece, oftentimes over the course of the years, think about how do you just start to set this up so that you cultivate a culture of learning within your church context? Yeah, I mean, it it really varies from church to church and from group to group because we'd want to consult with the with the church to figure out, you know, who is it that you're looking to lead? Is it someone who or to train? Is it someone who like you see as the potential to become a pastor in the future? Or is it like what Branson said, current elders or deacons or someone already leading, serving in leadership uh, who needs further equipping or training in kind of the current, like what's going on right now? Um, and so then 
we'd we'd try to identify what's the best way to do that in a realistic, sustainable, like not just five days a week, you know, the 15 credits a semester kind of system, but in a doable, sustainable rhythm. So is it, does it then, it looks different for every church. Is it that you're, you're showing up and you're figuring out what they need and then you're basically creating a product, uh, to use economic terms, that fits that need um, on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much. I mean, we've talked about, like, we have a menu, and they're kind of selecting from the menu. And some, you know, some churches are like, we'll take the whole thing. And other churches are like, well, this is really the slice we need right now. Okay. Yeah. And it could even be, you know, one-time workshops. This is something that we've done for churches where they say, hey, we just need you to come in and focus on this particular area. Uh, so, I mean, one of the areas where we've both done research and, and teaching is on something like marriage and sexuality and gender. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of churches who are like, you know, we would at least like to do a one-time training and equipping and potentially more uh, along those lines. And so it really can be anything from a one-time interaction to a long-term integration with the church's uh, basically, again, culture of learning and leadership development. So um, one thing I'm kind of hearing coming out of this uh, is it seems that you're very Protestant-focused. Um, yes. You both came from Kuiper, which is, in fact, not just Protestant but Calvinist, um, more generally Reformed, not attached to any particular denomination. But does the foundry have any denominational attachment? Does it have any statement of faith? Is this, you know, are you kind of like, no, anybody who comes to us, we're, we're happy to work with? Um, you know, to what is what is the ecumenical reach, I guess, or the interdenominational reach of the foundry? We we do have a statement of faith, um, but as you noted, I mean, Branson's ordained RCA. I'm ordained CRC. A lot of our networks right now are through Reformed churches and Reformed um, Reformed communities. Although we do have pastors that are a part of like Disciples of Christ, and we worked with a non-denominational church, so it is pretty wide. Um, we haven't really done anything with Roman Catholics. Um, I don't know whether that would potentially be down the line in our future. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we will teach from a reform perspective, but we're very open and charitable and want to make sure we know and understand other people's perspectives. Yeah. And if we come in and work with a church, we want to be clear about, um, understanding where they're at so that we can work within those boundaries. Um, again, I think that's part of I mean, our teaching experience uh, at a place like Kuiper, which had a variety of people from a variety of denominational backgrounds, um, a big part of that was uh, even helping people to understand and own their own traditions uh, and as well as have an understanding and respect for other traditions even in the midst of that. And so um, trying to be ecumenical in, a, in, in that sense, I think, is, is helpful. And seeing some of the, what happens when you do have – um, you know, in some of our contexts, you have churches and pastors from different denominations who are connecting and to see, again, there even what they learn from each other in those contexts and, and how that works. But we're not officially denominationally affiliated with anyone. Okay. Um, so so you said you'd be open to working with Roman Catholics. What about, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints? Uh, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? Is there is there a line that you're like, well, we just— don't feel equipped to do that, or we don't feel that it's appropriate, or it doesn't fit our our convictions. Um, what you know is there a dogmatic standard <laughs> for yeah, the foundry? Yeah. Is my my curiosity. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, for me, it would be it would have to be within the orthodox stream of Christianity, broadly understood. Uh, and again, without going, I know there's conversations around uh, you know the groups that you've mentioned and exactly how they should be considered in that way. But I think at least at this point, until I did further research, I would not be comfortable working with those traditions. I, don't I, know I think the very That's... first class of theology that we did when we we're talking about the Trinity and like working through that stuff would would open a lot of eyes to like there's di- there's significant differences between the perspective that we're coming from and the perspective that they're coming from. Um, and so that might end whatever relationship we might have started. I mean, I guess, again, th- kind of theoretically, yeah, we'd be open to teaching them, but not necessarily like partnering with them, if that might be a, a helpful distinction. What would, what are you hoping for? Let's say, you know, it's it's almost you're coming up on your first year anniversary um, and you've already had to kind of adjust and adapt and learn some things by trying things. Um, what do you imagine the foundry is going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? What's your kind of long-term goal? Um, is it the sort of thing where you want to be like the mega corporation of, uh, you know, church leadership training? Or are you hoping uh, to inspire others that they'll be like, you know, Pepsi Foundry and Coke Foundry and, you know, not, I guess that's like another corporate, another corporate, but you know what I mean? You know, like. Ma the, and Pop like, Foundry yeah, and I mean, Uncle regional, Drew I don't know how, how we want to look at yeah. it. Um, and they don't have to be Foundry exact, but you know what I mean? I, do you want competitors? Is this something that you hope other people will pick up on and you'll create a whole new market? Or is it sort of like, no, we're, we're doing a great job. We don't want anybody else encroaching on our, our market share. You know, um, how, What's your perspective in terms of growth and, and not just economically, but also you know, goals in terms of uh, uh, the effect that you'll have uh, or hope to have on the church? Yeah, so I think a, a couple things there. So if we come back to the discussion of higher ed a little bit, I think part of what we have to recognize in the, la- in the next five to ten years is that uh, a lot of these institutions like smaller Christian colleges uh, and even to some degree seminaries are going to continue to have struggles. Uh, some of them – I mean I, th- I think I'd argue that a lot of them have already shifted away from their mission – their original mission of Bible and ministry training – uh, have gotten tied up into a higher ed model that's unsustainable and doesn't work. Uh, and so part of the question, though, is what those institutions did in the past, what like a Bible college or a Bible institute or even seminary did, um, that there's still the need there. And so how do you fill that need as these models around us are, I think, going to be – they're already in crisis, but going through the further <laughs> either death throes for some um, or adaptation for others – uh, and, and so part of it, I think, for us is to say, how do we um, help churches understand that need and work with them to to meet that need? Uh, and for us, it's more of a of thinking about how do we do this in ways that maybe does have something like regional hubs where the point is not for us or for me and Jeff to do all the teaching uh, at all, but rather to create a platform to say, um, I mean, I actually think in 10 years, you're going to have a lot of people of different ages who were in our role as educators who are like, what do I do now that my school is closed? Uh, how, do I, how do I use these gifts? And, and I think that was the question we were wrestling with is, what, what does that look like going forward when you start looking 10, 20, 40 years down the road? Uh, and to, to build, instead of kind of centralized denominational seminaries, to say, how do you help more localized churches and probably collaborate in a way that is going to be much more interdenominational, 
uh, to do some of that equipping. And so really trying to build, seeing the foundry uh, as what I think is the leading edge of uh, this need uh, to do this. And so we're trying to experiment and lay the groundwork for uh, those who are going to come um, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, but uh, to try to build up the church and to really utilize the gifts and, and skills that are already there in the church to recognize there are a lot of people with PhDs or doctor of ministry degrees who could teach. Um, if you were to say, hey, here's one you know, eight-week class a year, you know it's coming up. And we'd love to have you share your gifts and abilities in teaching that way. But that's something that a pastor on their own, until you build that system, they don't have anywhere to utilize that gift. And so it's, it's really about thinking about looking at the needs, looking at the gifts and matching those up and trying to build something that's going to uh, effectively do what the church needs done. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely not seeking to become the mega corporation of all all church leadership training across the United States and the rest of the world. Um, but even as we started, even as we were communicating to people, like, this is what we're planning to do, uh, we'd get messages from others who are like, oh, do you know this group out in Oregon or this group in Mississippi or whatever? They're kind of doing something like you're talking about. So there are pockets out there that are reading the same stuff we're reading and seeing the same kind of needs. Um, they're doing it from different angles and with different constituencies. Um, but so they do exist. And I see, I mean, one of our core values is collaboration and teamwork. Um, and I do see that down the road, there will be more of these hubs, these networks of like-minded people doing this kind of training. Um, and I'd, I'd love to be a part of that. So you mentioned uh, what you're reading. What are you reading? What is, what is the, the, you know, the more theoretical foundation for what you're doing? I mean, I, we, we kind of addressed more of the practical side, but you presented a paper about a month ago yeah. where you got into, you know, Ivan Illich and others and... Um, I found that very fascinating, and it, it it drew from literature that actually was aimed more at um, just general education, perhaps even you know primary school education. Um, but you're were then applying it to ministry training. Yeah. Um, so how does this fit with maybe broader questions or discussions of public education, unschooling, you know, all these kind of buzzwords and that sort of thing? Um, where does it fit? theoretically, in terms of philosophy of education? Yeah, I think Illich's book, De-Schooling Society, was was uh, really helpful for me in putting a lot of things together. And, uh, you know, part of the argument that, that he makes there is that we have, um, you know, we, we've really reduced uh, learning, which is very rich and happens in a wide variety of places, um, but, but our institutions of schooling have sort of captured this, that only learning that happens within uh, our institutions of schooling is legitimate learning. Uh, and so he even compares it to a kind of sacred secular divide where it's like only, you know, you've got this piece of paper. So that means you did actual learning as opposed to somebody else who uh, learned in a wide variety of ways and contexts. And so I think um, for me, it so partly resonates part of my story is I was homeschooled my whole life, uh, K through 12. Uh, and this is, you know, going back to a time and, you know, when I started in the early 1980s in Iowa, where it wasn't clear if this was even fully legal right, at certain right. points. Like I remember my mom being like, well, don't tell anybody at the store that you're homeschooled because <laughs> we might get it because there was actually a family in the church there that got taken to court because they were homeschooling their, their kids. Um, and so when I think about the shift there from 
you know, my experience in the early 80s versus now I, my kids are homeschooled and taking them to these different homeschool co-ops and partnerships. And there's just like hundreds of kids. And so, and even that homeschooling, when you think about what that is, a lot of times they'll use language like parent-directed schooling or something like that, because this isn't all stuff that just happens in, at the home. Yeah. Um, and so I see something similar happening, especially in higher education, that we're kind of on the front end of this huge disruption where, you know, people like the Foundry are kind of on the fringes, kind of not mainstream. But I think as we continue to move forward, just as with the the homeschooling movement, it's more about recognizing that there are a variety of pathways, a variety of avenues that people can travel uh, to learn what they need to learn. Uh, and and so I think putting it putting it within that framework, it's much closer to um, you know competency based education. Uh, and that kind of focus as opposed to, you know, get your credit hours, sit in the seat this long. Um, we're, and so we're trying to, I think, function uh, in that way. So, so I think that's kind of where we fit in terms of the overall, um, you know, philosophy of education and schooling it takes a much broader approach to what is learning, what are the outcomes we're looking for, what counts as learning, what are the places where learning actually happens, uh, and recognizing that I think for a lot of professions, this is part of, the, again, um, because of the dysfunction of higher ed, because of the economics, that I think many professions are starting to say, well, to what extent is college necessary? To what extent is that? And there are some for which it will be and will continue to be necessary and valid, and that's fine. But then there are many others that are saying, well, if, if the goal is training people for a certain profession, what's the best way to do that? And maybe four years of college is not the best way. Uh, and I think ministry training is one of those things that falls under the heading of, yeah, we can figure out other ways to do that uh, that costs a lot less and that's more effective in actually training people. Yeah, and then when this is particularly applied to ministry, some of the books that uh, shaped what we're doing, Todd Bolsinger's stuff, Canoeing the Mountains and Resilient Leadership, um, were also pretty instrumental in in us discerning, okay, what what do we do? I mean, we're kind of at a new, I don't know if you know the the story of the canoeing the mountains, but um, basically he does the, you know, as they're exploring North America and they get to this point, they've been traveling all through rivers. And so they used canoes. Well, they get to the mountains and canoes don't work to get over the mountains. You need to figure out some other new way that you need to get over the mountains and explore the rest of this territory. And so uh, the metaphor he's using is what's the next thing to canoe the mountains? And it's particularly to theological education and ministry. Um, and then also J.T. English's deep discipleship um, helps you know nav- explain where we are in terms of what's happened across the church and that we haven't focused on—it's it- either been— learning, education, or community fellowship. And part of his argument is how do we bring these two things together so that people are actually formed as disciples in the church? Um, Willie James Jennings, After Whiteness, was also, I think you included that in your, yeah. uh, in your talk here as well. Um, you know, that was another book that was pretty instrumental. How does in that us. relate to, to education models? I don't think a lot of our listeners would be yeah. Uh, familiar with it. Yeah, so so Jennings' uh, book after whiteness, and the subtitle is uh, "An Education in Belonging." Um, part of part of his reflection there is to to think through uh, in what way education, the way that I would say it, education often creates this distance, and within the church and within ministry, this sense of um, you know that I went through this education, so I have sort of mastery of the the material. Um, 
which in a lot of ways can create distance between pastors and the churches that they're trying to serve. Uh, and so arguing that, in fact, a lot of churches even want this, right? They want the person with all the answers, the person who has the knowledge, has the ability to control everything. Uh, and so oftentimes he says that's kind of what we've held up as the ideal of education is um, this person who knows everything and so therefore you know, creates this distance between uh, those who are really that they're meant to serve uh, and their posture towards serving. Uh, and so for, for me, Jennings' book was really crucial. If you, if you go back to thinking about what was it that um, allowed me to step out of my job, uh, was really this question of, you know, to, to whom do my gifts belong? Is it to God and the church? Uh, or is it to me for the sake of sort of my own use within academic circles or other things like that? And again, I, th- I think the goal here is not to um, somehow disparage knowledge, uh, but to say, how do we set up education? How do we think about education uh, in such a way that instead of creating this distance, that it actually creates communion and connection and belonging? Uh, and so I think within that framework, again, it's thinking about um, trying to set up training and equipping that ends up with with people actually able to serve the church and love the church in that way, uh, as opposed to having a posture of, um, you know, I'm the educated one and so therefore I have the answers, which I think a lot of pastors and churches alike have figured out that doesn't actually work well as a model for church flourishing. So what does that have to do with whiteness? <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's the, the yeah. question a lot of people would wonder, I, right. I, people who haven't read the book. Um, I, I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you want to speak to that? Or? Well, I mean, I think one of the challenges is, is Jennings isn't necessarily using whiteness in the same way that is kind of in the, in the current uh, colloquial language right now. Um, yeah. But, but it, it has more to do with this kind of mastery piece and the, um, the separation between the one who's doing the teaching and the, other, the one who's doing the leading, um, and the one who's educated, and the other people who are disconnected to it. So it's, it's some of that separation between the one who is to serve and those who are to be served, but it's actually creating this chasm between the two. Yeah, and that I think, uh, at least in the way he uses a term, you know, I think I said this in a paper, when when he, he talks about whiteness, I just, I hear what I learned as an undergrad, just language of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That this is that this is the impetus in the modern world toward uh, reason and science and control, uh, that all of those things kind of go together. I think part of what, Jennings does, and admittedly, I feel like this is where, depending on who you're talking to, um, this might create the opportunity for more conversation. But Jennings, Jennings says, look, this is tied to a certain uh, white European vision of the world. Uh, and he doesn't uh, – I think his book, The Christian Imagination, if you want the more in-depth narrative of what he means by that um, – is helpful to read to get a sense for that because I think um, even at the conference, a couple of people afterwards were like, "I don't, I got caught up on this language, right. and it just seemed to not not work." Uh, and so I, I get that because I think without the fuller background, it can be a little bit confusing. Like he even says in the book, like what I mean by white is not actually reducible to people of European descent. Okay. Um, that it's this, it's it's, I mean, more of what I would use the term worldview uh, that does happen to be prevalent among people of European descent, um, but 
Uh, I think he tries to, and the book gives different examples of how this is not something that's just uh, limited to, you know, one race or ethnicity, but you see how this way of looking at the world and even this way of looking at education um, often forms us uh, into certain kinds of people. Yeah, it's probably more historically connected to the way things have developed over time than necessarily ethnicity or, or racial connections. Okay. Um, so maybe more of like an elitism, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, mm-hmm. an educated elite and then the other people, right, who are yeah. supposed to just listen to what they say. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, I can't think of a better expression, but this is a very bad one. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially in a ministry context. Uh <laughs> Also with the history of the Inquisition. Anyway, um, <laughs> in neither case is it an accurate uh, metaphor. But but um, a lot of higher ed in general, um, going all the way back uh, to the medieval era, um, was based around the, the classical liberal idea of we want to develop well-rounded people, right? Um, we want people to go and study mathematics and study, you know, astronomy and study... Um, you know, literature and every subject before they go out into the world. So they're this well-rounded person, especially if they've had the privilege of an education, uh, so they can be a resource for their community. Um, well, the f- a lot of the recent criticism, not so much on the financial side, but more in terms of, you know, the the structural model of higher ed is that you have all these kind of siloed departments mm-hmm. and nobody really knows how their discipline relates to anybody else's discipline anymore. You don't have even well-rounded teachers, not to mention well-rounded students. Um, And yet the foundry to me seems to be moving even further away from that, Um, that you're kind of taking a silo and now breaking it off. Um, Now, of course, you were breaking off from a ministry-focused school in the first place, so uh, that's not as big of a break perhaps. But um, to what extent, you know, is is that a concern? Or is that just not something that you're like, hey, that's that's not our vocation? Um, But... You know, I could see this model being replicated uh, for other professions, uh, for, you know, not just ministry, but um, you could easily do it for elementary schools, right? You want to be a math teacher? Well, we're going to come along. You're good at math. That's all you need to be to be a math teacher. We're going to come alongside you. We're going to educate you. And suddenly you have a math teacher who knows all the math and no Shakespeare. And you have, you know, and maybe we already have that. (laughs) I don't know, right? Um, But the concern would be, you know, education is supposed to to serve, you know, the 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 good and the true and the beautiful, and that is uh, refracted into all these different disciplines of learning. And now it's like we're taking a single color of the rainbow, and we're saying, "Oh, that's good enough," right? So, yeah. so how would you push back against that? What, what would be your response? Well, I mean, I have a, have a couple thoughts on it. One is, you know, the foundry is not really intending to be a, a liberal arts kind of approach. I mean, as you noted, we're we're kind of a a, a, a niche in there. Um, and part of the reason for that is uh, Justo Gonzalez uses this really helpful ne- metaphor of that often in education we think about a, a pipeline and we're like sending students through a pipeline and, you know, watering, filling the pipeline until they get to the end and they've mastered all of this or they get their doctorate or whatever. And instead, he he wants to switch it to the metaphor of an irrigation system where the the water is flowing through, but it's, it's you know, uh, providing water providing nutrition for different areas of the field. But what we've created in this irrigation kind of a pipeline system is these gaps where there's no one who's doing the watering. So we've got the K through 12 stuff. We've got 
college, we've got theological education seminary typically, and we've got PhDs. But there's these gaps, particularly in ministry, where it's between, I mean, we, we sometimes use the phrase between the sermon and the seminary. There's these gaps where people are not being watered. And what the foundry is trying to do is identify what are those gaps and how can we use our gifts and skills to fill those gaps so that we can irrigate parts of the field that have really not received that. Yeah. And I think so even thinking about the, the education model, I mean, part of part of my struggle even with the, the, the college model as exists now is, you know, in our previous context, it's students did all these subjects in high school. Now mm-hmm. we're going to make them take mm-hmm. 36 credits of gen ed that substantially is not radically different from everything they just did in high school, but yeah. is a whole year of college. So, again, the economics of that, uh, I, th- I think at a certain point there are pros and cons there. Um, I, but I do think this is part of where our role as teachers and, and equippers comes into play, that um, a big part of what we want to model is, um, <laughs> if I can use it, like just a voracious appetite for continual learning. And, and so to say, uh, you know, this I think is crucial for – especially for people in ministry – um, you know, Tim Keller in his book Center Church or his book on preaching talks about the fact that if you are going to minister uh, or preach or teach to people in our culture, you have to understand our world and our culture. And so part of the reason I think somebody like Keller is so effective is because he's rooted in philosophy. He understands history. He reads on economics and he's engaged with pop culture. And so as we enter into those contexts, I think I think perhaps part of what we can do is – help people recognize that, again, the learning that we're talking about may not take place within these traditional sites of education. But if you're somebody who is doing ministry in a church context, you better be aware of the ways that you need to be constantly learning, reading, and growing, um, both individually, just cultivating that for yourselves. But I think, you know, one of the things that I would, that, that we're looking at as we move forward is is to say, how do we provide spaces for uh, pastors to have just a learning cohort where we're going to read together, we're going to engage, and some of this may be on stuff that we can see how it's directly tied into ministry. Others might be things that are more about understanding our culture, understanding our world. But I think, again, taking the broad view of learning and thinking about how is this lifelong learning, not just a terminal project, um, and actually cultivating then um, times of gathering or groups that are actually focused on doing that kind of learning – I think is crucial and and effective in the long run because you're right. I mean, if we if we are producing people who are uh, just so laser focused that they can't understand themselves, their own history, their culture in that context, they're not actually going to be as effective in ministry. And so I think that's something that we have to uh, make sure that we're carrying with us, thinking about how we do this both in terms of formal ways, but also the overall ethos of what we're trying to cultivate. Jeff and Branson, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks for having us. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.